Hey guys, this is Corey. So a couple weeks ago, Brady and I recorded what was supposed to be the first podcast. And just due to the fact that we have absolutely no friggin' idea what we're doing, we weren't happy with the quality of it. So we got some better equipment, tried to make things a little bit more streamlined, and then guess what? We have now connectivity issues. So we're trying to work all this out because basically we suck at life. But, you know, we did get something recorded, and the content was pretty good. The spirit was in the room. And so, just for the sake of getting something out there that I think is high quality in content, if it's not even in presentation, and the fact that maybe someday we'll look back on this and it'll be kind of a novelty thing, you know, nostalgia, laugh at ourselves when we sucked, hopefully we'll have that moment. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there. So, for your listening pleasure, this will be what is effectively the first episode of Fenthesis. Enjoy. Welcome to the first episode of the Fenthesis Angling Evolved podcast. Now... What exactly is that? Um, I've sat back on the sidelines and looked a lot and watched a lot of the things that have progressed in the angling industry over the past few years. And one of the things I've noticed is everything kind of gets thrown into categories and everything kind of gets partitioned into different groups. And I understand why people do that because that that increases its marketability because they're trying to target. So you're trying to target a demographic, whether it's kayak fishing or bass fishing or musky fishing. Uh, but the thing we're trying to do here is a little bit different because the thing that I've noticed coming from a, a relatively unique background in angling is that there really is much more correlation between everything that is fishing than there is separation. And that's something that I feel like kind of gets lost in the static, especially in the uh, aspect of marketing in the industry at, at large because they're so concerned with finding their target demographic that they don't realize how much of all of this, even when it does organically, it all kind of coalesces. So here we are. Uh, this is the first episode, hopefully at least not the penultimate, because we're going to do one more uh, with a very special guest. Uh, my name is Corey Allen, and my co-host is Brady Lewis. Hey, all everybody. How you doing, Brady? I'm doing pretty good. I just got home last night from seven straight days at work, so... I've been excited. I've been on this. I've been excited to get this started. Um, I think it's going to be really good. I'm a podcast enthusiast. I listen to a ton of them. I listen to a lot of the mainstream ones, but I listen to a lot of the smaller ones too that some people I'm sure do and don't know about. And the one thing that I I can agree with you, everything is you know really broken down within the fishing podcasters musky fishing podcasters bass guys but nobody ever that i've come across wants to talk about angling as a whole and where where it all came from and where it's going and how it's all really relatable when you break it down well and that's the thing too we noticed that i mean we noticed that as like i guess you would say that we're primarily musky fishermen um but you know it's like i tell people all the time i'm like you know Nature doesn't really give a damn what you're fishing for. No. <laughs> you know? I mean, <laughs> no, it does there, not. Like, it doesn't matter what you're fishing for. Anytime you throw anything in the water, you're you're basically, <laughs> by default, multi-species fishing. Absolutely. <clears throat> no, excuse me. Got a little bit of the cold coming down. But no, that's the, that's the thing that you notice. And I think a lot of it comes from the fact that a lot of people don't know kind of the historical epicenter of a lot of these things that we see today in the angling industry. That's kind of where we're going to start at. But before we go down that route, um, yeah, you kind of nailed it on the head. Like, we kind of live in an age where 
everything is kind of done for a reason, you know, like, and I'm not, not saying anything in particular about anybody or anything, but like most people when they do things, it's like, it's, it's, uh, it's an ulterior motive. Forgive the negative connotations of that, but like, they're doing this to promote this, and they're doing this to promote that, and they're doing this to take advantage of this target demographic or this, uh, this group. Um, not take advantage of in the sense of like, you know, being nefarious, but like, no, it's not a negative thing. Yeah. They're just trying to like tap into this quantifiable resource pot. For sure. Well, we want people to listen to this, that fish for this fish or do this thing, or they practice macrame in the nude or something. I mean, there's always something It's like, there's this little niche thing. And I mean, the, the very name and the notion behind this whole deal that I came up with is, uh, you know, forgive the uh, diabetically cute appeal of it, you know, trying to be quirky. But I mean, that's kind of the nature of it is, I mean, it's synthesis. You know, I was thinking about this. I'm like, dude, what, what can I name something that is everything but nothing in particular? And not trying to be ambiguous just for the sake of not having a directive. But so I'm not limited, you know what I mean? Like, so we're not limited. Like, we're not going to be like, well, we're going to talk just about this all the time. We're going to talk about this all the time. So anytime we try to bring something that's a little bit different, it's like, whoa, 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 stay in your corner. It's not your thing. You're not fishing out of a kayak or whatever. No, it's like I wanted a name that would allow me to kind of go anywhere and let us do whatever we want to as we please as long as it relates to fishing. Um, Not so much for freedom to move Rome about the cabin in and of itself, but more for the fact that there's a lot of stuff to talk about that correlates between these little orbs of the industry. Like, there's a lot of things we see, like, as examples as musky fishermen, is, like, a lot of guys will not explore so much. Or there's just this wall. It's an imaginary wall. They're like, well, I'm fishing for muskie. I must buy muskie baits. And then you throw, you say, well, you should buy this bait. And, like, I've had people literally say it to me before. Well, that, that's a bass bait. Yep. Okay. Your point is what? But, I mean, I understand that that is, if you don't come at it from the right perspective, you would think just by, you know, vicarious indoctrination that, well, yeah, why would I throw a bass bait at a muskie? Or why would I throw a... Musky bait, I mean, the thing is, none of these things are really, they're not mutually exclusive. Like, there's some correlation behind all of this stuff. Anything that concerns the water and the things that live in it, you would be amazed what the correlation is. And what's kind of cool, kind of unique, and uh, a little bit of a, a burden to bear, but something I would like to get off of my shoulders, is the fact that not too many people really know where a lot of this came from. And uh, I grew up in a really unique element to where I was, uh, I was kind of, I was, I loved fishing, I grew up fishing, uh, you know, with my grandfather, Peepaw. And we grew up doing the whole um, jumping in the sloughs and the bayous. So believe in that, people think Illinois and they think, well, there's no sloughs or, you know, there's nothing like that. But you live at the delta of the two major river systems in North America. There's actually quite a lot of uh, oxbows and sloughs and stuff like that. If you're familiar with the Cache River system, like this, that's basically what I grew up doing. It's like jumping around 
fishing those things with my grandpa and, and for crappie fishing. And when you do that, we catch a little bit of everything. But then kind of as I got a little bit older, my dad uh, got more into bass thing and then won't go down this road too far. But like he, he kind of stumbled upon a guy that is really deserving of the legend that precedes him. And it's almost more amazing that more people don't know about it, considering just how influential he was. And uh, in the words of Julie Andrews, let's start at the very beginning. I think it's a very good place to start. And I don't think there's a better place to start than the story of Buck Perry. And I know I can just literally audibly hear the eyes rolling back in the heads of some people. But the thing about it is, more than just being a really, really cool, untold American story, um, there's a lot of things about what he did that really, they're timeless. They're not, there's no expiration date on them because the difference between what he did and what a lot of people do today now, which a lot of what they do today is, I mean, essentially, you know, standing on the shoulders of someone they don't even know exists, is they try to adapt things to make them their own. Whereas what he did was observe things in nature at a scientific level at a strikingly young age. And then he developed his theories and his methods around them. So that's kind of where we're going to begin with this podcast. And what we're going to kind of try to show you is, yeah, this is not going to be the Buck Perry show, starring Buck Perry, it's not going to be the Corey Allen show, the Big English show, you're going to have a guest basically at the time. But the thing that's interesting about what this old man did is that without directly doing it, he basically illustrated the fact that all of these things that we're fishing for, it doesn't matter if it's fresh or salt, or north or south, or east or west, or fly, or baitcaster, or trolling, or any of that shit, there, there's like some single universal elements to it that if you don't worry so much about analyzing the process, you analyze the product of what you want to do through these terms, uh, the whole process of how you go about it becomes liquid and, and pretty cool. Um, you're, no, you're no longer limited by these little partitions like bass fishing. You know, if I'm fishing for bass, I got to do this. If I'm fishing for this, I got to do that. And really, there's, there's no really hard and fast rules, but there's only really one rule, and he kind of wrote the book on that rule. So, uh, I'll tell you what, let's just start with a little bit of an opening narrative of the Buck Perry story. So the interesting thing about this guy that we're talking about, uh, Elwood Buck Perry, is that, I mean, he was born, I mean, he died, what, 15 years ago? That's 14 years ago now. Um... But, I mean, he was a product of uh, the 20th century. This isn't like, you know, you're dealing with someone that died during the Da Vinci age, days or something. You know, it's like just somebody that was relatively, um, he was alive during relatively contemporary times. And it's fascinating that still he's to have been so influential. And, I mean, posthumously, which I, I see as both, you know, honorable and then slightly insulting in a way like the the uh the credit that he got after he was dead um it still doesn't really seem to do him justice like the things that he really tapped into go much deeper than even the materials i think i don't i don't materials from the life 
I don't know that anybody could at this point in time could do anything to give this man enough credit. Well, that's and I mean that sounds like we're dick riding. No, you know, forgive the phrase, but, but like, we're not. That, that's the thing. I try to tell people, and it's funny. It's so funny to me, Brady, because like when I've talked to people that don't fish, and you tell them about this guy, and I mean it's only happened a few times where like we come up in a conversation where they're actually wanting to know about some of the stuff and it usually happens from an organic segue where it's like i mentioned something kind of weird and they're like well what what makes you think that and i go into the theories of this guy right like fish fish like, live in deep water yeah or or and you know like we say like we're going to talk about like some of the things that he said um you have to look at them from a proper perspective so like deep water being stability but the most consistent factor of stability in a fish's uh, world would be deep water. When you understand the perspective from which he, he, uh, he looked at things. And really, when you really scientifically break down the stuff that he was talking about, and kind of, I don't want to say totally read between the lines, but kind of, because kind of some of the stuff he said wasn't just totally forthwith, but it was really kind of implied. Um, it, it turns, I wouldn't say it turns a lot of the stuff that we accept today on its ear, but it takes all these little competing variables that people try to mash together into some melange of logic. It tears them apart. And it really, it, yeah, it puts them, yeah, it puts them into some semblance of singularity. Where like you can look at this, and it's why I try to tell people, I'm like, look, I get if you look at this whole thing as dogmatically as a lot of people look at other things you're going to be just as limited in a way by this as you would be the other thing. But you have to step back and look at the field up. And uh, and that's something we'll, we'll go into progressively and from the start a little bit. That'll definitely be a very progressive part of it because these things will show how they correlate from people that fish, fly fishing, to saltwater, to this country, to that country. It's, that's something that did. it's all country. relative. It's all relative. And really the coolest, the, the coolest route, route I like to go down with this is when we take fishing, there's this schism, and it's always perplexed me. There's a schism between what we would call fisheries biology or ichthyology or even some of those things, and then they look at fishing, and it's it's kind of put in its own corner to a degree. And there's this little bit of a schism of Montagues and Capulets. Not entirely, but from a scientific aspect, there's this thing where the data gathered from fishing or at least the feedback gathered from the interaction of angling itself when a fish eats a bait under what given circumstances, there's this disconnect between that and the biology surrounding all these things. And um, really, I think that's the thing that he kind of tapped into that, that I, dare I say, I don't think anybody's really touched upon. And really, I mean, if you want to get all crazy with it, dude, like I was telling somebody the other day, I'm like, you know, we live in an age now where, where there are literal billionaires questioning whether or not we live in a simulation and whether or not we live in a simulation in the way that, like, you know, you would consider a simulation like the Matrix. I'm like, you can't not look at the, uh, the existence we live in today and not see that it is in some definition of a simulation. Really, when you look at the stuff that Buck came up with, and then, excuse me, then come up with, discovered, and then based his principles and methods around the things that he discovered, it really showcases the fact, more than anything that I've ever seen, that the way we kind of fundamentally look at nature as a whole 
isn't wrong, but it's kind of skewed. It's a little off tilt. And we don't look at it as singular. We look at them as little competing variables, like this thing is against that. Darwinian evolution, uh, you know, survival of the fittest, it literally implies that for one thing to live, the other thing has to die. And these things are at odds with one another to compete for their very right to exist. But the real nature of the fact is, it's like saying that a clock, the cogs within a clock, compete amongst themselves for existence within the clock. But I mean, the thing is, if not for all of these cogs existing within the clock, the clock would not exist. And that's the thing that I really want to get into with some of this stuff. Find ways to logically apply it to angling, but then take the angling logic and throw it back and be like, this is a really interesting thing. Like I, I say about fishing a lot, I'm like, it's probably the only true form of interactive biology where you're studying things in nature at a level where it requires a simulated a simulated response from them to gain the desired feedback. And so often the feedback just kind of ends with the feedback. You know, it's like, well, we caught this fish on this bait. Yeah, you... And, and, you you really you really killed it there. Um, take hunting for example versus fishing. Um, <laughs> you even when you're hunting, you you can be in the right place at the right time and you know shoot your deer or your squirrel. But whenever it comes to fishing, there's that. At the end of the day, you have to be at the right place at the right time with the right presentation. And that fish has to react in the certain way of eating your bait. Yeah, you have to say, and I hate, I hate the eating thing, and we'll get into that. Oh, that's like a, that's a, <laughs> that is a journey and a half right there. That's a Homer's odyssey. Killing your bait, whatever you want to call it. Like, no, 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 that's the thing, and it's not so much about the thing, but the connotations that accompany it. But that's the thing. It's like, yeah, you don't have to make the deer eat an apple. You know, to like exactly all that deer has like, to do is be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Yep, I mean, you set that up. But fishing is different, at least conventional looking line angling, which is what we're, what essentially what we're talking about. Yeah, I can't wait to get into all that stuff. But back no, to dude, I, I'm gonna be honest with you, Brady. I'm, I'm gonna be totally blunt, dude. I hope someone on this godforsaken rock that is way smarter than me hears this somewhere and says. Okay, I, this is interesting. I want to, I want to like actually figure out like what's behind this because there, I, and like I said, it might sound crazy. People are gonna be like, "What are they smoking?" And be like, "Not telling." But like, joking. But the thing is, it's really not that far fetched when you look at it through these terms. And and we're gonna showcase some of the, the contradictions within the logic of what we say is angling. Like for instance, you know, a good example would be how people will say that. Well, you know, like if a bait is walleye colored. And then when I say that, dude, I'm not saying the color doesn't play a role. I mean, bucks have a color plays well. But people will talk about baits, you know, being walleye colored to be, to simulate the forage base or whatever, which is a term that we give things observationally looking at them from the outside. Like, I don't think nature looks at things as forage and predator. It's, I think they look at them, it's a singularity. It's, it's literally as if you look at these things. We stand back and look at these things, and we see them as predator and prey and this thing and that. And 
nature itself, whatever you want to call the brain that is nature that dictates these changes that, we, I mean, even anglers, that's one of the coolest things I think about angling is that people are able to observe and witness within their own experience in very short spans of time, relatively speaking, the effects of conditioning provided by them. Meaning that nature and people say the fish gets smarter. I'm like, I don't think fish get smart. I think I don't think they can get smart. I don't think they're smart. But conditioning is like a hive mind. It's a hive mind thing. And that's something that's cool. I, I mean, that's a rabbit hole I could go down for an hour and a half. But we'll, we'll get there. But that's the thing I'm talking about. Is like we look at these things as if they're predator-prey relationship, all this stuff. And it's really the same as like looking at the different organs that make up a body. Is the way I like to look at an ecosystem. Is like, you know, the heart might be a little bit more important per se than like your pancreas. But if you remove any one of these things from this body, you're probably going to die at some point. The thing is going to suffer because of it. And that's how I think we have to look at evolution and these species that create an ecosystem. And then it's so funny, like when you bring a new species, you bring a species agent card, you bring a species that's a foreign element to this ecosystem, this living body of organisms, but then it throws everything out of whack until something can uh, evolve to accommodate that change, if it can. But I digress, or actually I would say I'd say it's a little bit of too fast progression, but if we may, let's get back uh, to the Buck Perry story, because that's that's a very good place to start, and not to bore you, but I think you'll see why at the end. No, you... So cool couldn't agree more he uh godfather of structure fishing well no let's just not even well and I don't mean to be so so interjectory but like I tell people all the time like there's no there's no such thing as non-structure fishing I mean it's <laughs> I, I mean I look at that and people call it well, structure fishing and I'm like you there's no such thing as fishing that isn't structure fishing because, like, this is genetically mandated within these animals. Well, dude, we were talking about it when we recorded the first cut, and we we're doing it now because of the quality. But, like, we were talking about it prior to that, and you were saying, well, what about salt? And then you literally caught yourself. Makes sense. You were like, oh, well, yeah, wait, but, like, tuna, they relate to the, you know, the drop-offs, and then they move up and move down. Yeah. Right? Yeah, those drop-offs might be 600 foot deep, but they still relate to them. No, I mean, that's the thing. I remember being in high school learning about this stuff. I'm like, what? And it's like, and then you study in the saltwater, and you're like, well, gee, what do you know? Like, this this basically applies there, too. You know what? We're going to have time to go here. I'm going to start. I'm going to stop getting distracted. Get back to fun. So, sorry, it's hard, dude. And I. That's the coolest thing about the concept of this podcast, the coolest thing about the concept of what this guy taught, but it's also one of the dangers, uh, is that literally, and I tell people that and they laugh at me, and I'm like, I don't give a shit. Dude, if you start here, if you find the source of something, like if you find the source of information for something, you can go anywhere, and that's the coolest part. And this is one of those few moments in any study that you can find what I think is the source of these things. Like he took it back to its greatest, I mean, the source of what this is about, and then you can go anywhere from it, and that is the entire premises of Fenthesis, is like, look, we can learn something from everything, and everything doesn't have to be limited 
within its own its own realm. Um, but let's talk about how I came up with all this. And the coolest thing was, uh, you know, we live in the age of smartphones and iPads and Xboxes, and we've got all these tools and these apps. But when we came up with all this stuff, there really wasn't anything. When I said there wasn't anything, he was born in like 1950 in the hills of northern, uh, western North Carolina. So there wasn't a depth finder. There really weren't topographic maps. And your limit of baits, like one page without refreshing on a online Bass Pro Shops catalog, like that, that's all the baits you have. He maybe had an encyclopedia. So what? He maybe had an encyclopedia. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, that was, that was it. I mean, there was it. I mean, there was no, th- this was basically all just, I mean, it was still kind of there was this magic that's kind of enchanting, I guess, to fishing where people still thought that, you know, the, the wily old fish was smart and he could get away and, you know, everything was about that and all this stuff that really doesn't matter. But, um, I mean, the cool thing was when he was a kid, he grew up fishing in North Carolina with his dad. And he had that kind of mind where I, I talk about this. And it's like every once in a while you'll meet some guy. I had the privilege of meeting him when I was young enough, but also old enough to appreciate what kind of brain he had. But every once in a while you get one of these people that they're just on another planet. I mean, it's like, it's like what did Joe Rogan talk about uh, when he ended, did an interview with Elon Musk? And he said it's, it becomes very apparent what a chimp you are when you're in the presence of someone like Elon Musk. And I'm like, I'll, I'll just tell you, like, that's the kind of brain, whether or not he had decided to fish, that's the kind of brain that Buck was. Um, and everything else in his life, aside from fishing, he can showcase that. Even when he was a child, he grew up, you know, he's at the, at the behest of his parents and his dad, so they would go fishing. So he liked to fish. He grew, he really liked to fish. So he'd go fishing with his dad. And he would go down... When they weren't fishing, he would go out on the dock. Correct me if I'm wrong, I believe this is... Uh, it was a mountain lake in North Carolina, one of the older reservoirs, so I don't know. It was a clear lake. And he, he had the privilege of being able to, because it was clear, he would go down at various times of the day, various days, during various conditions. This was not just some kid going down to watch the fishies in the water. He was going down, it might have looked that way, but he was going down under very precise directives to observe what nature was doing under different circumstances and so over the weeks and uh you know, and when you say months, he's a kid you're talking 12 13 years old yeah he's, he was like 12 years old 11 or 12 years old he's doing all this stuff so he would go down and he would watch and i don't know if he took physical notes but he was definitely taking mental notes and so he would watch these things. He noticed this on a certain day, and then there were certain days he noticed this, and he'd correlate that to the sky, and correlate that to this, and doing all this in his head. And so one day he's out fishing with his dad, and they're out in a little rowboat, and they're just doing their thing, and just out of the blue, in the mouths of babes, Buck says, "Dad, we're not we're not fishing in the right spot." <laughs> I mean, it tells his dad, and his dad just kind of rolls his eyes. And, uh, you know, it's whatever. And so a few minutes go by, and, you know, Buck can't contain this anymore. And he says, Dad, we're not just not fishing in the right spot. Like, we're not fishing the right way. And his dad kind of obviously gets a little bit disgruntled with him. He's like, what do you mean? 
And so this child, like Jesus teaching the doctors at the uh, at the temple or whatever, at the age of 12, starts to profess. He says, well, I've been watching these fish, Father, under different conditions. And I've come to the conclusion that under certain conditions, uh, which seem to be directly correlated to different light conditions, they will follow very specific paths from deep water to shallow water, but they do not stay for the most part in shallow water. They spend most of their time in the stability of deep water. But when they move from deep water to shallow water, they're following very specific paths that lead them to specific areas of shallow water from which they progress and then digress depending on the situation at hand and the conditions they're presented with. And so this is a 12-year-old kid telling his dad he's an idiot, basically. <laughs> I mean, I, I couldn't imagine doing anything remotely close to that at 12 years old. Tell my old man that he was doing the wrong thing and that we should do what I want to do. Like, that's mind-boggling. Well, well, and especially back then, dude, when, like, you know, that was the turn of the century, dude. Things were, things were pretty... Uh, Way different. Way different, for better or worse. Yeah, way different. yeah, for sure. And um, for better or worse, for better and for worse in some ways, it's way different. But like, the fact of the matter is, is a twelve-year-old kid that went down and observed nature from a dock, and he came up with these theories that basically became the foundational principles on what we see in fishing today. But really, I think should even become more so the foundational principles of what we see in like aquatic biology and ecology. It's fascinating. Um. So the story, long story short goes, well, life goes on, all about the old Wadak. And he's doing other things. He's really smart. So he goes off to college. He got a scholarship uh, pitching baseball for North Carolina, whatever, whatever university. And um, he eventually became a physics professor. So the guy's not an idiot. But this whole time, during which you can read his biography and his stuff on Wikipedia at your pleasure, this whole time, he's still got in the back of his mind about this so he's fishing a little bit here and doing this but he's like this is still in the back of his mind he's like doing all these other things he, he you know obviously drafted in the world war ii he's still thinking about this finally comes the time when he gets back he's got an established business um he's made enough money and that's that's a big thing too is like buck uh, made several patented uh inventions he owned a furniture business he was independently wealthy, so like his motivation for doing any of this concerning fishing had very little to do with anybody's pocketbooks. It had to do essentially his own curiosity and then his willingness to share that with other people. So eventually it came a time, I believe it was in his 30s, where he found financial security, not just security, but I mean he was very well off. He could devote his free time to studying this. And so what he did was take all these observations, all these theories, and he put them into words. And um, that was basically what became the cornerstones of what we know as modern angling science. Like, for instance, without going too far into this, have you ever heard anybody use the word structure in fishing? I personally use it every day. Everybody does, but they don't always use it correctly. But... People are like, well, who's who's to say what the correct terminology is? Well, I would say the guy that coined the word in the context of fishing is probably the guy whose definition you should adhere to, which is him, because he was the first guy to coin the word structure in a fishing context. And his definition is 
topographical changes of fish using their migrations from deep to shallow water and henceforth and hitherto. Um, the fingerprints of a body of water, like we just said, which I mean applies to every fish you go to anywhere ever. The saltwater fish um, obey these principles. Freshwater fish obey these principles. And we'll talk about that at some point. Like my personal theories on why I think that this thing has something to do with evolution and gravity, just to be off the cuff. That's the that's the only thing I can think is that when all of this was you think about that, why would the bottom of a body of water have anything to do with the animals that can freely roam about this entire environment because of the different rules of physics and density that apply to that as opposed to air? Like birds have to have lift. Well, they have wings, and we can't do that. We have to come up with these like crazy aerial screw dimension contraptions. But fish, you know, they're, they're pretty well, like even at its finest, the closest non-water animal that we have to showcasing how effectively fish can utilize their habitat would probably be a hummingbird, you know, or, or a, a bumblebee. But I mean, like, you can watch these things. They can hover wherever they want to. They can go wherever they want to. They do all these things. But, like, the energy expenditure of them to be able to do that is why they literally have to feed off, like, liquid sugar. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> And for these animals to do that so effortlessly and to have evolved to not only just live in this environment, but utilize it at that level, it's like, well, why would the topography, why would the bottom affect an animal that doesn't, is not a slave to the bottom? Why would they care? They can float somewhere they want to. But that's something that Buck discovered was he was like, the, the bottom topography of any body of wire plays a large role in how these animals correlate therein. I mean, and it really doesn't make any sense when you think about it, except when you think of it as a hive mind sense, where it's like evolution's making these things and trying to create some order, order to this ecosystem. So it has to be the order that controls all these things without there being just total bedlam. You have to have a constant. And the one constant in any body of water is always going to be the bomb. I mean, within real, you know, within some realistic term, I mean, it's like, you know, obviously some... Ge geological event could occur, but like that, the bottom of a body of water is the thing, it's the gra gravitational expression in an aquatic habitat. If that makes sense. I'm trying to make this make sense. It's, it makes more sense in my brain than it does when I say it. But so these are things that we're talking about is like he was observing how these things were relating to these things. He developed his methods around them. The long and short of it is. He had several cornerstones that came to this. He would talk about the topography and how topography dictated where fish, no matter their habitat, would roam about the cabin with some orderly, justifiable, discernible method. Right? You could find the paths that they use and justify them with his teachings. So you could intercept these paths and use them to your advantage. So different breaks, break lines, drop-offs. Uh, and his materials that he wrote, which I highly recommend. But none of Saddles, humps. Yeah, he was the first guy to ever literally wrote category, like he, in part of his nine-volume study course, part of it is structure situations, where he basically takes every single type of possible structure situation you can encounter, draws diagrams of them, and shows you how fish will relate to those accordingly based off the constant of the principles that he, he outlined. So it was like 18. I mean, that was the thing. I mean, speaking for my own fishing, I mean, when I was a little kid, I always wanted to fish 
a musky lake that had site feeder stream cuts in it, which is a structure situation he outlined in his book. But it's also a structure situation that almost is entirely endemic to these TBA reservoirs by the nature of their construction, which is basically you have a big long flat, and then the thing that made the reservoir is the channel. When they dam it up, the upper part of the reservoir jumps the banks, but it only jumps so high. It goes back, but it covers these massive amounts of water, but only very shallow. So it jumps over the banks, and it makes this lump between the channel and what you would perceive as the shoreline. There's a big, long, shallow flat. But because of that, every time there's a little creek or an inlet that comes into the main channel, it would make a cut. So where most people would just go down the bank and beat these things, long story short, you would have a cut that would hit the main channel, so your fishing wire would be out off the main channel. And then also the current from these TVA reservoirs would create uh, silt deposits, delta ridges, another term that he coined, um, along the edge of the channel where he was saying these ridges would prevent most fish species from traversing between the channel and the shoreline because the shallow water was at the edge of the channel and this deposit in this ridge, it, it's one of the things that I, I've seen a lot and I agree with in a lot of instances with a lot of fish is like it doesn't, and this is another thing that's really fascinating to me is like what does up and down in topography have to do with any fish when they can swim wherever they want? But one of the things he talks about in his book is so often he says fish, it doesn't make sense for fish to go down to go up, meaning that it does not make sense for them to go down topography if it's dropping to go shallower. So if they find shallow water that's offshore, even though it might be correlated to shallow water against the bank, more often than not, especially largemouth bass, which is a species we base the study on, they won't follow that topography. Their shallow water ends where it begins to grow deeper, if that makes sense. But that was something, I mean, not to go down that path, but there's something in, in the books that was like fascinated because like, there were no musky lakes that had same figure shape cuts. They were all natural lakes. Uh, and some reservoirs, but no TV ones. And then I end up down in Tennessee, and I, by golly, I get to fish uh, muskies on site figure stream cuts, and I've caught a pretty good little number of fish over 50 inches doing that. And uh, it's pretty cool. It's one of those things, like, you know, a lot of guys would mock this and be like, yeah, but, you know, just to be quite blunt, I never saw anybody fishing those things as far as I got here. And it's pretty cool to see things in a book that was written 60 years ago apply to a modern angling situation that didn't exist prior to their introduction to this habitat that was new. But yet, they still related to it the way a guy wrote 60 years ago in a book that most people don't know what to do. That's pretty cool. That's just a personal testimony. But that's how potent this stuff is. So, like, he, he narrated or outlined all the structure situations. Uh, the big thing, more than anything, I think, that he taught was, he said, if you follow, like he said, fish use these topographical paths uh, to move from shallow water to deep water in the daily seasonal migrations. But the big thing, the big thing of focus, I think, that he said more than anything, was his adamancy that he said, all this stuff about fish feeding, fish eating, and stuff, you have to emulate this or me, I think. He said, look, he said, if you control your depth, in this order, if you control your depth, your speed, your size, your color, and your action. And I, I twist a little bit. I say depth, speed, size, action, sound, color. But I think there's a little bit of the see between species, depending, like some salmonids are more color sensitive. Um, like walleye or size. something. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be little idiosyncrasies, but still, 
the formula is still basically the same. And it is a formula. You control your depth, speed, size, action, sound, and color on and around the features of fish using their daily and seasonal migrations, which is basically anywhere that you fish ever, they're going to be using some kind of feature. Then it didn't just say that you'll catch fish, it said the fish will get in the way. Which I'm not even sure, I assume he was. I'm not sure if he intended the implication of that statement, but basically what it's saying is there's this game in motion before you go fishing. There's this whole thing going on. And there's all these controls at play, and there's this clockwork and all these things. And it's not so much about this thing trying to not get eaten from this thing and this thing trying to eat this thing. It's about the mechanism itself as a whole maintaining order. And all of those interactions are controlled by depth, speed, size, action, sound, color of the organisms within the habitat. So your job as an angler is to not necessarily emulate. Sometimes it looks like emulation. Sometimes it has nothing to do with emulation whatsoever. If you ever musky fish, you ever looked at a double ten bucktail. Don't ever tell me that there's anything about a double ten bucktail that emulates anything in nature whatsoever nothing. that that animal has ever. No, there's absolutely nothing. nothing. But it's it's nothing. And I get tickled if people are like, "Well, it's a walleye colored one." I'm like, I don't give a shit. It's like you, you paint a a, a zebra stripe a dog. It doesn't make it a zebra. You know, I mean, like. It doesn't make a difference. Like, this is not, that has no correlation. But people will get offended at that. But the fascinating part about that is when you take that and you look at it through the terms of the step, speed, size, action, sound, color thing, now you see that what he was basically getting at is there's no difference between the interactions that provide them sustenance and the actions that provide us recreation. There's really not. You know what I mean? It's I do, all the yes. same stuff. I mean, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's all that, there's no difference. It's the times that, like, we've seen, I, I've had people tell me that they striper fish. A really good friend of mine, like, to get on here, Todd Asher, told me one time, said he's seen live skipjack that he puts on a hook. And long story short, he's like, the skipjack will kick, 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 kick. And strikers like to skipjack because skipjack kick really hard. And they, they usually act real spastic. And they, they beg to be, they, they, they commit to the programming. That's why I say it's all code. All these things are just abiding by the programming. And when they don't, that's when th that's your job is to sync up with the program whether the fish are active and active neutral. Um, it's it's all it's all it's if you want to be like you know half joking for a minute it's almost like the Matrix, and you've got that and, and you've got that size speed yeah. action collar, and if you can you know create your ultimate player so to speak and you know have the right size speed action collar those fish will be in your way. And that's 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 basically it. You're hacking into nature. And to me, that's way cooler than, well, I got it. I made that fish eat. And I get the, I get the connotation of that. I'm not making fun of everybody. But like, I think it's way cooler to look at it in the terms of, like, this has nothing to do with hunger or you trying to, like, this isn't some wily coyote roadrunner thing. It's like you're kind of hacking into nature. That's pretty cool to me. I think that's a way cooler approach to it, and it all comes from fundamentally looking at Buck's teachings the way that we're talking about, than the usual, where you see all this competing logic. It's like when you, people say, well, what do they eat here? You know, what do the fish eat here? And I say, well, they eat what's here? You know, I don't, I don't believe that, I don't believe that's the way evolution works. I don't believe that's the way nature works. I don't, I don't believe that you could take an animal designed to perform a function, uh, a specific task in an environment. Maybe like if you take, we'll 
just say a mosquito. Because, you know, that's what we, we like those. Take a mosquito from a lake where there are not gizzard chat present, or there are not certain species, but there's maybe whitefish. I don't think, or ciscos, I don't think the fish that are feeding on a specific item within that body of water, if you transport them and put them into a place where there's absolutely nothing that they're familiar with eating, exists, I don't think they're going to starve. I think their programming is just going to dictate that they end up inadvertently consuming other organisms within their environment. You know what I mean? I mean, it's that's like... A, it that's an interesting sense. thought process. So you're saying that if... Um... So, so you're saying that if you took uh, muskies out of a lake that had gizzard shad that you know were up to that 8, 10, maybe even 12-inch range, and you put them in a lake that had, you know, like a threadfin shad or something, you know, more in like that 4 to 6-inch range, that you think that they would just be able to instantly adapt and, and just... Yeah, pretty much. And go all pretty about much. their business. They would see that forage and follow it. Pretty and, much. Yeah, I mean, because I think even the things that are forage only become forage whenever they access the same programming. That, that It's the same programming that dictates whether your bait gets eaten. It's the same programming that dictates whether or not these things provide them sustenance getting because they're all just doing a job. You know what I mean? Like, the, the byproduct of, like, we do things in society so that we can afford to buy food. Sure. Their whole function within their society is Survival. to either provide food or control things from a different element of the food pyramid. I mean, that's it. Like that, it's it's just it's just this controlled mechanism of the ecosystem where everything has a job, but within the context of this this whole game, their job is to control the other things. It's like we were talking the other day. If you really want to go down the rabbit hole, um, when we talk about Darwinian evolution, I was talking to a friend the other day. I'm like, yeah, think about this, and that's why I like looking at it through this this scope. Because this totally changes the way you look at the whole 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 field. And so predator prey, this thing chasing that. And then, yes, I understand. This is what it looks like. Yes, I understand. This is what, and this is the role it plays out. But like, do you ever think how, if Darwinian evolution in the way that we interpret it is so true? Not saying that evolution isn't real. It's very real. It's very smart. It's very not to contradict the whole. You know, thing to me, I was like, there, it, evolution is a very intelligent design. I don't know what made it or if anything did, but it's a very, very intelligent design. But it's it's a singular intelligent design. It's not all these competing elements. But you have to think about that. Like, if, if really Darwinian evolution and all these things were not designed to maintain a singular order and everything was invariably competing with one another to vie for its existence, not only would there be utter chaos within the ecosystem, especially in water where there's not there's not the, the grounding, forget the pun, of gravity, where things can roam about so freely. Can you imagine, like, the chaos if it was just constantly things being chased by other things, being chased by other things? I mean, that's what I tell people all the time. It's like, I don't think that these animals are, are chasing things or doing these things or following bait fish or this, that. I think that the same controls, the same environmental conditions that dictate the bait fish are there are the same environmental controls that will dictate predators are there. Because if they're separated, neither one is able to properly do their job because it's symbiotic. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
I mean, I know it's such a weird way to look at it, but like, it's the only thing that makes sense to me. Because otherwise, can you just imagine like what a constant mess it would be if everything was constantly running from everything else? There would be no order. There would be no. It would be just total, absolute chaos, and the most freely open world environment that exists on the planet, which is water. Like all these things that live in it can can go anywhere they want technically within this environment. But there had to be order, so that's how it works. Didn't mean to go down the rabbit hole, but it's a fun one for me to go down. Um, but you think about that, even in the terms of not just that greater order of this ecosystem, but more the fact that, like, so let's look at each of these species. We'll take a freshwater ecosystem, for instance. Isn't it interesting that, like, so you got these species that are considered the forage fish, right? And they're the ones that get eaten. They're the ones that to be eaten. And ironically, also the ones that are more usually herbivores or they feed on smaller macroinvertebrates or something. Long story short, they're doing their job. But them doing their job also dictates that somebody else's job is to put them on a commission and keep them in control, correct? <laughs> keep them control. Yeah. But if you look at it through the whole survival of the fittest, survival of the fittest lens, why then would these animals that are so heavily predated upon by other organisms larger not develop the same defense mechanisms that animals that do service predators develop in the same ecosystem. So Ooh. a good example would be, why do gizzard shad not have sharp dorsal spines? To keep fish from wanting to eat them. To keep, keep from fish from wanting to eat them. And why would they ball up into balls of thousands of fish where they, they don't even have to really like work too hard at this and chase a singular one down. Like they can just swim through. I've watched muskies feed on uh, uh, thread fins and they feed like rock balls. They just swim with their mouth open. That's, that's basically all the muskies have uh, around me to feed on in the two in two to three lakes closest to me are small thread fin shad. And they get fat as hell. But that's the primary, that's the primary, we call it, it's not even like those terms, they're like forage base. I'm like, well, they eat what's there, dude. But, like, it's the funny thing to me. It's like, but then you look at the same environment. It's like, well, when all these things were evolving, there weren't too many things in these habitats that would be able to physically take an adult muskie. But in these habitats where there are lesser, I don't want to say lesser, but smaller tiered predators, you know, like you just were a predator because then it puts them in that class. But, like, in the same environment where you'll have muskie and pike, what else do you have? You'll have perch, crappie. Bass, bluegill, which they might not seem like predators, but they're game fish. And it's kind of ironic how usually the things that we term as game fish serve the role as what we would say is a predator because of the nature of their ferocity and doing their job. Like we, we can manipulate them to get the desired result by throwing little things that look like fish at them, if you just want to put it in the latest terms, right? I mean, not, not that, obviously not that rudimentary, but... They're the ones with the spines, right? Like even catfish. Like I, th I, th I always thought that was funny to me. That everybody's like, all these things are competing with one another for all this stuff. And it's like, ah, I don't think so, Tim. I don't think it works that way. Because, like, why would why would the predators, the ones that are not, I mean, does that make sense? I'm trying to put this into terms. To, to, like, an, to an extent, but look at bluegill, for example. You know that larger fish feed on bluegill catfish bass musky pike but they have a sharp 
dorsal fin. They have a deterrent to possibly protect them from more predation than the other things that are doing a, a different task. The things that are controlling different levels of microinvertebrates and macroinvertebrates and all these things. But it's like, so the fish you would call predators, technically, if you want to put them in that classification of the food chain, have more evolutionary deterrence for being preyed upon than the fish that are forest fish, which is counterintuitive in my mind to survival of the fittest. Because it's like if evolution worked that way, why wouldn't the animals that are most preyed upon develop the best uh, deterrence? To me, it all seems like that this is all big giant, one big giant clockwork. I was telling uh, a buddy the other day, I was like, and it, it was one of the things that made me think about that. I'm like, I was watching rabbits in the backyard. And it's like the rabbits spook, and it's like, well, what do they do? Here's an herbivore that's fast and evasive. And what do they do whenever they spook? They literally Run. raise their tail up in the air and, uh, and paint a target sign on their butt. So anything chasing them knows exactly where to track them. And it's like, well, yeah, you can look at that as like, well, they're alerting their friends. I'm like, that doesn't really make as much sense as this is a symbiotic relationship. And even though the predator and the prey serve these different tasks, it's like, this is, this is, this is singular. Like this animal is doing its job and this animal is doing its job. And you have to look at it like that. I know we kind of went down a real deep rabbit hole there, but it's, I've never really thought about it like that before. I mean, it's weird when you think about that shad, like shad, they hatch by the tens of thousand, and they don't live forever. And it's like, what else are they there for other than to be fed on? And then you, yeah, and sure. then you look at fish at the top of the food chain, like bass or musky. You know, musky aren't aren't they're not great at reproducing. They don't grow big fast they're slow growers and they're not really a super hardy fish when you really break it down compared to other ones and it's just weird how it's all kept in check well and that's the thing it's like people look at them as all these independent independent entities and they're not it's a, it's a singular one but i mean we see that too it's like what's the two strains like the the lacustrine strain of musky which was one that evolved in in um waters that didn't have northern pike and then there was the the uh the other one that evolved in lakes that did have northern pike the one that evolved in lakes that didn't have northern pike gets really fat and rotund but they have small heads they don't normally get as long because they didn't have to fulfill that role right and the thing and the other interesting thing is pike have adhesive eggs muskies do not so pike and they spawn a little bit earlier so pike inherently are going to out reproduce muskies Oh, I got a question. So, not to make this all about musky for a minute, but um, which one of those two would like your Great Lakes Ohio River strain be? They would not be the lacustrine. They would be the bigger ones. I think from the inherent name, like because the 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 Ohio River muskies came essentially from the Yancey River, um, which is a dead river now. It's cut off by a glacier, and then the Yancey River strain became what eventually was forged into the Ohio River. You know, have a river stream, Great Lake stream, um, and those animals coexisted with northern pike. That, and they also seem to have a much more diverse um, ecosystem with other pro- Like they had to contest with catfish and all the and big catfish, blue catfish, and right. these other. You know, so like they they developed the same characteristics of the ones that had a different job to do. They had more of a job to do, so they developed bigger heads, even though they didn't. You know, but the 
not to digress, once again, I don't think we're digressing, we're progressing maybe a little bit too fast, but the whole point of all of this is the singularity behind all of these things and all these animals and the way that they're cohesive and the way that they interact and are meant to interact. And we look at it as possibly being a violent, um, you know, there's a discourse, but really it's harmony. And it's not even the the Lion King form of harmony, like even then, it's the implication, but when you look at it through an interactive term, like we do with angling, you have to look at it through that lens too. It's much more, it's it's liberating when you look at it that way. Because now you're not so slave to like, well this thing, you know, I have to make it eat, or I have to match this or do this thing. Now you're looking at stimulus and feedback. And that's that's really the ultimate thing behind buck stuff. The stimulus and feedback. Saying that like, you control your depth, size, extra sound, color, blah, 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 on around the fish face, fish will get in the way. What is that term, what does that basically break down to? You're dealing with stimulus and feedback. You're not talking about, well, this is a musky bait, this is a bass bait, this is a pike bait, this is a trout bait. You're saying stimulus and feedback. Stimulus and feedback might have some idiosyncratic tendencies within species, but I can tell you, I, I guarantee you, it's not just canon. Like, there's no such thing as a musky bait. No such thing as a trout bait, marlin bait. And we see that more and more today, just kind of organically occur, but even still, there's this pushback. So the way I like to illustrate it to people is this, is like if you take a circle, everybody's familiar with a Venn diagram. You take two circles and you put bass in one, or over one, musky on the other. You take all these things, you write stuff in it. Okay, musky is this, 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 bass is this, 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 all right. So every once in a while you have these things where the two worlds kind of converge. They they definitely overlap each other in aspects. A lot, because they share a lot of the same habitats, and it's hard to ignore the results of bass anglers when they inadvertently catch muskies, which happens a lot. Oh my god, um, don't even get me started. But the funny thing is, we pay, we seem to pay attention a little bit more than the bass guys pay attention to them, than the, the bass guys pay attention to the bass that the muskie guys catch. But, that's, that in and of itself is part of the problem. But, like, this whole depth, speed, size, action, sound, color thing, this formula, really the only functional formula in fishing, not to talk smack about other formulas, but that's the only formula... Like, when people ask me, it's like, uh, you know, what, what do you, I tell them, I'm like, I don't have all the answers to fishing. I just have the answer. And they just kind of look at me like, uh, what? And I'm like, no, dude, if you think of it in these terms, it happens to me, dude. It happens, I went out with two friends the other day, it's like, I think he had one follow. The other guy had four and caught one. And it was like, dude, but it's, in the terms of this, you know, just saying, it's like, I could look at this like, well, he had a magic bait. No, no, no. I'm paying attention to his depth, his speed, his size, and specifically his action with the muskie. The action one gets fun with muskie more than anything. Um, and we'll talk about that in future podcasts. But, but uh, when you look at it through those terms, go ahead. All of this whole, in, a, in all of this stuff that we've been rambling on about, all goes back to the wandering mind of one person. Yeah, I mean that, and that's the danger of it because literally, you, there's so many exits off of this. There's so many. It's literally like you're just on one of those things at the fair that you like put your back up against, and they play the rock music, and it like throws you back by the force of centrifugal, like centrifugal force. And then it's like there's these little things that'll shoot you off the side like a solid shooter. Like it's like because anywhere you can go, it's like yeah, that's the cool thing about buck stuff because you start there. You start with the depth, size, and sound color. You start with the structure. 
And then you begin to see all these correlations between all these species. And you're like, oh, well, this will work with this, but I bet this will work with that. And, and I... Th- and I think the I think the next probably the next thing that we should really touch on with him is you know the spoon plug in itself, and what I want you to do for the people listening who don't know what a spoon plug is, I want you to just describe what that is. Yeah, so like, what's the one thing that the barometer does change? The barometer changes the ability for the atmosphere to hold moisture. So what does that do? All these different clouds that form and stuff. But that filters out parts of the non-visible light spectrum, like you said, like you talked about when you were saying it had nothing to do with the barometer stuff. And one of the things that's really cool is when Buck first came up with all of this, there was no commercial air traffic. But as he, as he grew up, he was doing all this stuff, and he was traveling, you know, spanning the globe, going around, catching fish all over the country and all over the world, and showing people, like, well, this is universal, and you can learn to do this and do that. And it's still amazing. Look, look, he did that. He went to all these different bodies, literally globe-hopped around the country and Canada and with salt water. He uh, and did all this stuff, and people still don't know who he is. But the thing was, he noticed as he was doing this, we started to have commercial jetliner traffic. We got jet trails. He noticed... Under high barometer conditions, the jet trails would dissipate. Under lower barometer conditions, the jet trails would stick. One of the things he talks about in some of the old YouTube videos, which I suggest you look up, they're pretty cool, not the best quality, but the, the information's weapons grade, is he would talk about looking for jet trails. Because he'd say, if you notice the jet trails start to stick, that's a better condition. What does that have to do with the fish? He's like, well, no. He's like, look, you're getting more moisture. The moisture's filtering out more of the light spectrum. That's going to lead to more stability that's going to create better conditions for fish activity. There's stuff like that that, like, he said it without saying that, that. I mean, we're not just talking about, we're not just talking about fishing now. We're talking about observations taken from the interactive biology of angling that really kind of reevaluate the way that we should look at aquatic ecology. Because I don't really know any materials that talk about how the light spectrum affects these animals but that's the one thing uh, these fish have things that allow them to compensate for pressure changes in the water column they have air bladders they can adapt they can swing and we'll talk about the, the theories they have with musky and the whole porpoising thing later on it's, it's, that's what i said when you start here you can go anywhere and there's so much cool stuff and not only that when you start with this stuff as a basis you'll start to have these cool little thoughts and you'll be like oh that that's interesting i noticed that that makes sense and then you'll and you'll even notice things about the physiology of the different fish be like like the difference, and we'll go into this later, like the difference between things that make bass strike and muskie strike, because bass can inhale baits, muskies can't. And this, this this can work with all kinds of different species, all different animals. But it all goes back to depth, speed, size, action, sound, color. But this thing with the fish, it's like, well, the barometer, they've got ways to dealing and adapting with pressure changes. I don't know a single fish that has eyelids. And that's the funny thing to me is it's almost under, if you take that and you look at it through that spectrum, it's like, you know, if this has to do with non-visible light and, and the stability they're seeking is from light or different parts of light or even more just this is the ecological regulator that dictates how all these things interact and maintains the order, which I think that has more to do with anything is the, is the, is the light levels and non-visible light levels. Now you're looking at something that's universal amongst basically every fish. They don't have eyelids. So it's almost like, yeah, they use these things to see, 
but their lateral line is so much more sensitive and, and attuned to their environment than even their eyes, especially in lower um, lower light penetration environments, darker water, which then again, that also was something Buck talked about where he was like, rank the water colors. He said darker water, you get more consistent activity because or you fish stay shallower and more active more often easier to catch because you have less light penetration. And nobody would, not too many people would argue that. You know, not too many people would tell you that like, well, the, 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 you take two lakes right next to each other with the same weather condition. Most people would tell you, and you can watch so many fishing shows and see where the guys pick. You see it on the Linders, you see it on Joe Booker's show, you see it on all these shows. They look, they, they fish all a lot of dark fish water the lakes. dirty water. They fish dark water because they get more consistent action. Why? Well, some Buck talked about too. Where do you think they learned it? But what does that have to do with barometric pressure? What's the water color have to do with barometric pressure? Not a damn thing. Absolutely nothing. What does it have to do something with? Light, Light penetration. Filtration. Light penetration. We can. We literally just took some stuff from some guy wrote vicarious or wrote something years ago, and you can take the entire. Not saying you shouldn't pay attention to the barometer, but if you just focus on the barometer, you're going to miss some other elements too. You know what I mean? Like the correlation is an equal causation thing, and this is all something some guy wrote about like seventy friggin' years ago. And we're going to be able to get so in depth with this stuff. And then, I mean, you can talk for hours, but we're, we're going to we're gonna divvy it up through the podcast segment. It's not all going to be about that. We're going to showcase how these elements correlate everything together from saltwater, freshwater. We've got guests, um, globe trotters like Steve Ryan, Mark Towers that fish all over the world. They're going to be really interesting to talk to. I don't want to draw, I don't want to name drop too many people, but it's kind of daunting who we've got willing to come on and spill the beans on stuff with us. Well, that's the thing. The way, the coolest thing about this too is like, you realize that spilling the beans isn't really even spilling the beans. But the things that you take away and extrapolate from people's beans are are usually not the things that most people would consider the important things. But when you look at it through this stuff, and you start to think the whole depth besides actually sound thing and all this stuff. You start to see that it's not so much about the bait the guy was using. You start to understand what about that bait allowed it to be effective in that method and you start to really be able to put things together and it's no longer this grasping at straws people they, they have confidence in this bait and i tell people all the time like you shouldn't have confidence in a bait your bait's an inanimate object it's just a tool but what is a bait when you apply things to it and you apply different presentations trolling casting jigging you're dealing with different combinations of depth tree size action sound color which Buck said, if you control those things, the fish are going your way. So now you're dealing with, that's the singular answer. Like don't, you don't know all the answers, you just know the answer. And if you start to look at it through that lens, then you're like, man, the, the mystery, there's always going to be things to learn, always going to be things to study, but this mystery behind it, and this, this esoteric of like, well, I guess this is the esoteric, but like, oh, you know, well, this, this bait is so good, this bait works. I hate that phrase, this bait works. Well, why? Well, I don't know it works. You know, what's so crazy about Buck Perry? I'm like, because this. Because it allows you to, like, figure all this stuff out. And even if you don't get it immediately and you don't understand immediately what it is, when you start to clench it this way, you're never lost. And we're going to show, too, like, it goes with spots. Because the stuff that he talked about, people talk want to know the spots. And it's like, you study his stuff, you don't even want to know the spots because you already, if you can't, if you study his stuff and you look at a map and you can't figure out where most of the best spots are in like 30 seconds, you, you need to go back and read it. 
it's just an amalgamation of criterion. This is the structural situations he laid out. And there's always going to be little nuances that you have to, like, go and experience for yourself to find the tweaks and find the little breaks and the drops and the substrate changes and stuff. It's, fu- it's, it's is- funny that you say that. Um, I, last year at uh, Brandon Lilly figure eight tournament, um, a couple of the Kentucky guys came up. I don't care to name drop them. They're great people. Lance and Daryl Caesar. Great fishermen, gods. Um, oh yeah, they are. The, the the first day that they were on my quote unquote home waters, they were pounding the absolute hell out of my favorite spot, and I got so frustrated that somebody could come and and find what was my quote unquote honey hole in hours. Just I could not wrap my head around that, but it's. It's location, location, location. Well, yeah, and it's just like I said, and there's nothing magical about a spot. Every spot is just an amalgamation of the same criteria in the buck laid out. There has to be some topographical differential between shallow and deep water. There has to be. And it's like there's different levels of things. And even seasonally, there's different things yes. that qualify them a little bit more during certain times. But, I mean, and, and as I said, like, these things, it's not that this is lost knowledge. It's kind of been trickled down and diluted over the time since he first really put it out there. But he is the source. And the thing about going back to the source is you can wade through all the other crap. Like, it's not that we've evolved past it. It's just people have taken certain elements of it and it's kind of embedded. It's kind of like trickled down. And now people kind of understand concepts of it. But still, when you really get back to the roots of it, you can't get away from it. You always have to go back to it. I said the buck stops here. And that's that's the cool thing to me is when you start there, you can take this anywhere, and you're never lost. I have people all the time that, that message me or ask me, and I tell them I'm like I'm no I'm no rocket scientist. This is not a smart thing. It's really not a smart thing. It took a smart guy to come up with this stuff, way smarter than I am. But to really get it, you don't have to be smart. It's just a paradigm shift. And you know, people will look at new bodies of water and they'll message me, and I'll be like. Oh, I would try there and there, maybe there, and then with this. And they're like, well, that's funny. That spot's like where I caught my biggest fish on that lake. And I'm like, well, it's here's why the longest, narrowest. Yeah, it's the longest, narrowest, sharpest, deepest break in the deepest water in the area. I'm like, well, that that, that makes sense. They're like, well, why does it make sense? I'm like, because Buck Perry said so. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, Stone Cold said so. Yeah, I mean, look, like, Buck three sixteen. I mean, <laughs> but I mean. That's, I mean, I'm not, that in and of itself is its own thing, but, like, just figuring out why, and that's why I like to spend my brain on like, okay, why does it make sense? Because it makes sense. Why does it make sense? Yeah, what, it does. It, it, it's cool that you know what a spot is and where it is, but what makes it a spot? You know, like, that that's what's going to make you a better angler is not just knowing where the spot is, but knowing what makes a spot and be able to find them and recognize them on your own. It's the difference. It's a language. It's all a language. And it's like understanding a written and a spoken language. Like, I look at I look at the study of topography and lakes, and, like, I say that's like a written language. Like, that's a written language. You have to know the language. It's like, and instead, and most people, they just want to read out of the Berlitz and be like, how do I order a hamburger? And they just read the phrase when it's translated from English. But then the presentation elements, so, like, the, the, the location the pathways that the fish use, that's the written language. The presentation is the spoken language. So the depth, speed, size, action, sound, color is the spoken language. 
So once you understand the location of where the, like what the 90-10 rule, I think Buck might have been the first guy to make that too. Everybody's heard it. He wrote about it in his book, 90% of the fish live in 10% of the water. Okay, well, what makes that 10% of the water the 10% of the water? What qualifies it as an ecosystem and habitat? Therein lies the rub. But the other thing is that's the written language, but the spoken language is the presentation. That's how you actively interact with the things that live there that you want to desire to catch, and that's it. But man, like I said, that's the coolest thing about this. You can go so many places with this stuff, and it's so cool because it goes into fishing world, but then it's like fluid, and it goes into like, wait a second, this is some interesting aquatic ecology stuff here. Yeah, too, and, and that's all, part. and that's all stuff that we're going to have loads of time to get into. Oh, dude, yeah, and that's why I said, I mean, we're gonna, we're gonna wind this one down here, but. Just to give you, I know we go off on these tangents, but dude, just, I'm sorry. <laughs> Not sorry, but I'm sorry. But like, this is what this is about. This is what Fenthesis is. It is like, you can start at this core and go anywhere. And we're gonna go everywhere that we can. Like, we're gonna talk about catfish and bass and all these other things. And the cool thing is, yeah, we're gonna be talking about specific things with these different species, but we're not going to be limited by them. And you're gonna, the way we're gonna present it, you're going to find things in catfishing, and you're going to be like, man, I should try that in musky fishing. And we're going to talk to people in saltwater fishing, like, man, I should try that in bass fishing. Or, or people using trout stuff. I mean, you're going to find correlations to all this because it is all the same rules. It's all the same language. It's all this Buckberry 316, that's besides action, sound, color, <laughs> all this stuff. I mean, literally, Buck 316, there you go. But, like, that is... That's it. I mean, that's the thing. That's the codex. That's what lets you figure out all the little nuances that really make fish tick, like he said. And it's a, it's a fascinating topic, and it's, it's very therapeutic and cool to talk about in the setting. But, man, I'll tell you what, we're going we're gonna to wrap it up for today. Uh, we're going to have a guest here soon. I say soon tomorrow. Uh, he's been under the weather, but Buck's gone. It's sad. You know, there's a lot of stuff materials about him. Um, we'll be recommending some stuff. There's some cool YouTube videos, pull up the footage and stuff. But there's a few guys out there that, that got to know him personally, studied with him. One of the guys that is, I think, one of the most influential anglers, if you don't even know who he is. He's definitely on the Mount Rushmore of fishing. One of the Mount Rushmore's of fishing is named Don Dixon. Don Dixon was one of the acolytes of Buck back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. He even had his own structure fishing course that he taught back in the 80s that he had on VHS. And he started to do a YouTube series now, which is really, really good. But this is a guy, he, I mean, he went everywhere in codfish doing everything. Um, his history with Buck is really cool. His history within the angling industry is even more interesting because if you want to do some homework on him, YouTube Don Dixon Muskie Tournament. And you will get to listen to a 25-minute story about he and his friend, uh, Buck asked them to go fish a musky term in a palm de terra back in the late 70s. They kind of got laughed at a little bit. They were the underdogs. Uh, there were all kinds of big musky fishermen. Everybody's got their hard-ons for the tournaments. Don't ruin it Basically, for them. Basically, every, every... Say what? Don't ruin it for them. Oh, no, but yeah, they, yeah it's, it's, it's a cool story. It's a Basically, great they, story. Every, every time I see it circle around Facebook, I take 20 minutes and listen to it. It's great. It's, it is, it's legendary. And that's the funniest thing. It's like it's a legendary story. Like it's a, it, it, 
it's amazing, but this guy is incredible. He's got the most humble art. He's incredibly knowledgeable, and we're going to have him on next time. But, yeah, if you can do some homework, look up that story, because it's you look at stories like that. You look at stories like Buck and Don and the things they did, and you're like, okay, explain to me how the guys that they kicked their asses became the guys that everybody knows, but you don't know who they are. I mean, it makes you wonder. But that's the thing. But we're going to have him on. Can't and, wait. Uh, Oh, dude, he's, he's, uh, we're lucky to still have guys like that around. But I'll tell you what, first episode of Fenthesis, this is Corey, Brady. Oh, man, it's been great. Yeah, hopefully, we'll, we'll give him a little bit more streamlined. Sorry for the, for the ranting and the harangatang that I turn into and, you know, and stuff. But it's something I'm very passionate about, and I really want people to know this stuff exists and it's out there. And not just for the sake of history, but for the sake of the future of this stuff. I feel like it's really integral for people to understand this stuff, to progress in angling. And to just... Just a great place to feel, start. Not feel lost. That's the big thing to me. It's like not... And even if you just start with spoon plugging in as purists, like you can be overwhelmed or you can... You feel like that you're forced to abandon things that you know because it is taken from another era before these other things existed. And it's like, no, you don't have to. You just have to learn how to correlate it to what you know. It's a paradigm shift. Like I said, I call it the codex. But that's the thing that we want to do with this is show how this is still so integral, why it's important, pay homage to the guy that came up with it, obviously, uh, which seems to be a bit of an anomaly in today's world, but also show why it is beyond becoming outdated. It, there's no there's no expiration date like this will always be relevant no knowledge, knowledge like this doesn't have an expiration date no because it's functioning knowledge it's not it's not pattern knowledge that's why i won't go into patterns i'm not a big pattern fisherman because even when you recognize a pattern a pattern is just a momentary synchronicity of the, of the conditions like buck talked about he's like well you got uh, pa- patterns have expiration dates yeah pattern, yes patterns have expiration dates but even then, people don't even really. This is how you. This is how you understand why a pattern is a pattern. And then you can notice what changes, so you can adapt to the other thing. It's just a, a pattern is just a momentary synchronicity. It's a slice. But when you take this stuff, you understand why the pattern is a pattern, and how you can adapt it once things change. But that's another story for another day. But I hope you guys enjoyed this. Uh, our little art project, man, it's, it's going to be fun on a bun, dude. I'm looking forward to it. Me too, brother. It's going to be fun. But, uh, yeah, this is Corey and Brady. We're going to be signing off. But, uh, tight lines. Hope you guys tune in really soon. And uh, our next guest is going to be Don Dixon. Like I said, check out his check out his YouTube video, Can I Get a Primer? And if you don't mind, look up some of his little structure fishing videos on YouTube. YouTube's an amazing thing because people have been able to put these things out to the public in mass. Give the guy some love, but he's gonna he's gonna have some really cool stuff to talk about. Not just from a historical log, but more just how to apply things for your own angle. But I tell you what, this is Corey Brady, and Brady, and uh, this is the Fenthesis Angling of All podcast, and we will see you all later. Later. Fenthesis angling evolved.